Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprague. And I'm Brent Stratton. In this episode of the Cato podcast, I have asked Travis Norton and Adam Sharkey to join me as we discuss confronting novelty during critical incidents. And I would like to take a moment to thank two Cato Gold sponsors for supporting the work that Cato does throughout California. Thank you to NAG Industries and Aardvark Tactical. NAG Industries is a premier provider for a variety of government sales products like Vortex Optics, Garmin, Streamlight, and many other brands. From breaching tools and training to the latest in pickleball gear, there's a good chance NAG Industry carries it. Check them out at nagindustries.com. I would also like to thank Aardvark Tactical, who's been a steadfast supporter for many years. While Aardvark is famous for their signature Project 7 scalable plate carrier system, Sejin Robot, Low-Key Drone, and Kinetic Breaching Tool, they also offer customized integrated solutions to meet a wide variety of supply needs, such as complete crowd control kits, IED detection, less lethal, and many others. To learn more, check out aardvarktactical.com. Work-life balance is something we all struggle with in our line of work, and especially with the people who listen to this podcast. For those of you who enjoy getting away by spending some time on the lake, casting a line, our podcast sponsor is for you. Cope's Tackle and Rod Shop has been in business since 2015 and carries all of your fishing needs. They are veteran-owned and are proud supporters of Cato and our listeners of the Cato Podcast. Check out their website at tackleandrod.com, enter discount code Cato at checkout, and get 10% off your purchase and get free shipping on anything over $75. Cato is a nonprofit organization that exists to serve law enforcement so they can train their departments and make their communities safer. One of the ways we do this is through support from businesses like Cope's Tackle and Rod. So consider supporting businesses that support us. So let's start a little bit by talking about the word novelty and, uh, and what that means. Yeah, so when we talk about novelty in the context of a critical incident response, one of the things that I identified early in my time as a sergeant is how do I react to incidents that I've never seen before? If I'm responding to a call and this doesn't fit a mental slide that I have, what happens with us is that we come up empty. And one of the things that checklists do for us is they work very well in well-ordered domains. So for example, when you're a patrol cop, or maybe you are, you go to a missing persons call, you can pretty much checklist that problem. You go to a domestic violence call, you can checklist that. You go to a simple barricade with a suspect inside a residence with a arm to the firearm, you can checklist that. But when you start to work your way towards problems that you've never seen before, a checklist is not going to provide you with the proper countermeasures that you need to solve that problem. And that's not to say checklists don't have a place. No, they absolutely so do. Checklists have a place for procedures, you know, and, and Tony Kern makes a lot of great examples of that, right? And uh, Sully, you know, great example of how checklists um, work and don't work. And that's why you need to be an expert to know when and when not to use them. And Marcus, I'll give you a, just a quick example of something that happened to me when I was a patrol sergeant that threw me for a loop, but that I was able to diagnose and figure out what was going on based on my knowledge of tax science from, from our mentors, Sid and those guys, is the what I call the slay the beast example. So picture you're going to a radio call, the call comes out, uh, subject comes to the reporting party's door covered in blood saying he just slayed the beast. Subject goes across the street into an open garage door. This is an attached home. He disappears, what she believes, your RP believes, into the house. Inside that house is a babysitter and two small kids. So you play this out. You have your discretionary time where you're trying to gain more certainty, right? The five characters of crisis. We're trying to gain more certainty. We're doing all of the, you know, checks that we can do, getting gaining as much certainty as we can. But it comes to a point where you're going to have to make a decision on what's going to happen when your first patrol officers arrive. So when we talk about risk, we can make a decision in this situation based on the information that we're given, or we can wait to gain more certainty to make a more informed decision. But the problem with that 
is that as you wait, you could be giving that subject who's covered in blood, who just went inside the house, an opportunity to harm them. But you really don't know. And so what's novel here is one of the things that I, I saw was, first of all, what do we all think when we hear this radio call? Well, we think this is nonsense. Well, one of the first things we do is how many times has this RP called the cops? Well, she hasn't called the cops at all. She's she's actually never called the police that we can that we can see. Okay, does that lend a little bit more certainty that this is actually real? Well, of course it does. But here, well, I decided that I was going to make a decision based on the information that I had. I waited as long as I absolutely could to gain as much certainty as I can, running a premise history, all of these different things. And then I told my officers, as soon as you have enough officers on scene, make a crisis entry. Now, what's important about that is that those guys went inside and I had trusted officers on scene because one of the ways to overcome uncertainty is to trust your officers. I had a couple of SWAT operators on duty that were doing that were working and they went inside. They pushed in and they found the suspect wandering around the house. The babysitter and the kids were inside the back and they were fine. But that subject had actually murdered somebody. But you can play this out several different ways. I've had people say, well, I would get a perimeter set up. I'd get a crisis team set up. I'd look in the windows. I would do all of these things. And none of these are wrong answers. But what I'm trying to get across is you should be able to articulate whatever course of action you should take. Adam, we go into another novel event and an example that I give from from that you know is the San Diego tank in 1995, where you have a subject who steals an M60 tank and is driving it down the street. And I show that video and I say, okay, can somebody pull out the checklist for the M60 tank rolling through their jurisdiction? And it right. proves the point that sometimes you are going to have to solve these problems as you go and use your expertise and develop that expertise to solve that problem. Because as you brought up before, we were talking about before we, we started the podcast, they exploited a window of opportunity when that suspects high punched that tank into the center median. Right? Right. We're always looking to exploit windows of opportunity. And I think these examples, and there, and there are others that we haven't seen before, but these are the ones that are causing us the most problems. One other thing, and I'll, Adam, I'll let you go on with this, but as I review active shooter events throughout the country, and there was one that I reviewed recently where I was out talking to some guys, and they said, hey, I'm looking at this active shooter problem. We've been ambushed. We have an officer down. We've been repelled on multiple entries. I'm looking at the problem. I'm trying to clear out the front of this problem with you know trying to port windows and do all of these things. and my checklist, my mental slide deck is absolutely failing me. And how do you, how do you counter that? How, what, what do you do? And I think this is a, a great intro and being brilliant in the basics and not getting bogged down. And, you know, we, we mentioned Sully as a great example, you know, 40 years of flying him and Jeff Skiles and they dual engine loss at 2,800 feet. And Sully knew his checklist, but he also knew how to move within it. He knew when to deviate from it. And a big part of this is you're looking at these novel events, events on, that don't happen very often, events that don't fit our checklist, right? You're trying to put a round peg into a square hole. So what we do know is present in all of these engagements is first it's going to be us and our adversary and then timing, terrain, and tactics, right? How do we exploit timing and terrain? The tank being a great example, right? There's nothing that we really have as a municipal police department that's going to stop an M60 tank rolling down the freeway. Um, you have people who are familiar with this tank, right? Prior military guys. And as soon as that thing high centers, people take action, right? They, they are able to see the terrain and the window of opportunity, the timing aspect to move on this suspect and eliminate the threat. Um, you, and then you also look at the OODA loop, right? The observe, orient, decide, and act. And one of the things where we get hung up on in novel situations is we observe what's going on but we may not be able to properly orient ourselves and diagnose the problem correctly. We may not really understand what we're looking at. So we may have a 
idea what the the problem is, maybe a 60% idea of what the problem is. And so it makes it much harder to move into the decision and action phases. So being able to not be bound to checklists when the checklist does not fit the problem at hand and being able to employ this concept of contemplation and action, thinking through the problem, getting back to the very fundamentals, um, you know, observe, orient, decide, and act, timing, terrain, and tactics, um, and, and finding where we can almost be asymmetrical, pitting our strengths against whatever the problem's weakness is, all in this context of what does mission success look like? Right? What are we hoping to accomplish here? If all we're trying to do is prevent property damage, well, that's a whole lot different than trying to execute an officer rescue or a, a complicated hostage rescue problem. Um, and I think part of the discussion today is how do we move through these novel problems using different frameworks so that if we don't have a checklist, is there kind of a framework that we can kind of work through these problems mentally to a better solution? No, and I think you bring up something that that we can touch on here real quick, which is sizing up a problem, right? And one of the most valuable traits that I think for incident commanders is the ability to size up a situation. And all that means is it is a process of critically evaluating an unfolding situation to talk what is the nature and magnitude of the incident. We're going to establish priorities. We're going to identify hazards. We're going to determine an appropriate course of action. And mostly that size up occurs in the earliest stages of that of that incident, what they call the golden hour. And you and I both know, and so does Marcus, that if we're going to intervene, those interventions are far more successful if they're promptly implemented in the first hour, which is often the most critical. Now I, I say an hour, it could be sooner, it could be less, it's just a, a placeholder, but it's easier to stop a trickle than a torrent and a flame than an inferno. And, that and is I think so important. Hundred percent, and I think for the for someone who's still trying to wrap their head around these degrees of novelty, these novel solutions, when there's no novelty, we're just exercising our routines and checklists, right? It's a car chase. You have you know two officers in the pursuit, maybe a canine, maybe a supervisor, air support. It's a routine car chase, for lack of a better term. If there's a lower level of novelty, we may customize our routine. Right. We may enter through a window instead of a door. We may create a different opening rather than going through something that's already there. And then as we have an increased level of novelty, we may adapt and coordinate our routines. We may pick something from this checklist and something from another checklist. When it's higher novelty, very high novelty, that's when we have to start getting creative. And what we want to do is create options. We want to predict outcomes, right? These are choose your own adventure problems. If we go with option A, what's likely going to happen? If we go with option B, what's likely going to happen? And which gets us closest to maximum success? And then we choose that course of action, we execute on it, and then we evaluate and adapt. And that adaption phase may happen very, very quickly or may play out over a period of time. But having those frameworks to work in when we have something like a tank rolling down the street or um, when I was a younger patrol officer, we had a carjacking. It was a pickup truck, and we had the the victim was in the bed of the pickup truck with a suspect high on meth, bombing down the freeway at 80 miles an hour. That's a novel problem. We don't train for how to deal with that. You're not going to pit that vehicle. You're not going to ram that vehicle, and you certainly want to bring that thing to a stop as quickly as possible so the person can get out of the bed of that truck. Um, if you're a supervisor, if you're a watch commander, you need to be able to either assess that problem and come up with options or have people on your team who may be working this problems and coming up with solutions on their own, right? It's a force multiplier when the team is so strong, you don't know who the leader is because everybody's coming up with options. They're all viable options, right? And that's right. part of the leadership challenge. Well, in, in, when we're talking about any objective assessment of these things requires that we have at least a rudimentary understanding of the nature of crises. Because what happens if we lack that scientific basis, that tactical science basis, we're just going to be forced to rely on what worked in the past or finding a matching skill set, which may or may not be adequate. And going back to, you know, those five characteristics of a crisis, we talk about all these crises entail risks. There are no decisions or actions that we are going to make without some kind of jeopardy. We also know that they're fraught with uncertainty and we're gonna be made forced, absolutely forced as a supervisor, an officer, a watch commander to make decisions based on information that is confusing, ambiguous, 
unreliable, and even conflicting, which means get used to it and be okay with that and understand it. On the other end, they're also time sensitive. These things are unfolding and you hit it before, time and terrain, continually changing. If we delay a decision and those decisions are often rendered ineffective because they've changed before they are implemented. And those are especially true when we talk about the problems that involved an adversary. Now they're time competitive. Each adversary, us versus the suspect, is trying to exploit opportunities and advantages when they occur. And who gains faster? Who can work through the OODA loop? The faster adversary gains an advantage. And sometimes it's decisive. Now, on the other end, and the last point I'll make is there's always the potential for severe consequences. Failure can be deadly, even catastrophic. We saw it in Uvalde. We've seen it in so many situations now where there's a potential for severe consequences. And we see the timidity piece, especially now because uh, again, I see it all over the country with young supervisors. I mean, my agency has five new sergeants that just got promoted that we're putting into patrol. And don't think that that it doesn't affect your response to a critical incident. When on top of that, we're not just dealing with new supervisors. What else are we dealing with? We're dealing with a bunch of new officers. And I think we forget that human factor. We forget the fact that the time of day that our problem happens. We forget about the density, right? Density increases the complexity of our problems. The more people, the more cars, the more dynamic everything is, especially in an urban terrain, which is going to force you as an officer, a supervisor, watch commander to make more decisions, thus increasing the complexity. Now you add novelty on top of that. Well, certainly that is going to challenge you like you've never been challenged before. And think about a supervisor a sergeant who's a month out, who's had eight hours of critical incident training, who's been 15 years in detectives, and now you're put in this position. You're setting yourselves up for, to be not successful. I think that's a very diplomatic way of putting it. And I think one of the, the first things that a supervisor, whether they're seasoned or whether they're new, is to know when the checklist may not get it done. How do you identify Novelty and novelty is usually in the anomaly, right? The thing that is unusual. Um, a pursuit is a pursuit. You throw in a tank, that's the anomaly. We don't usually have that. That's unusual. Um, you think about what happened January 6th at the Capitol. Politics aside and focusing just on operations, that is an incredibly novel event. That many people with the motivation to push forward and, and do what they did. There is all that is riddled with anomaly, um, that that whole situation. So if we identify the anomaly, we may know that our checklist, our standard procedures may not be getting it done. And we may need to start looking at other options. Now, as a supervisor or as a team leader, you have to recognize there is a heavy bias towards making things routine. There's a push to making situations in the routine space. Hey, we've done this before. We've always had it this way. It's just a car chase. It's just a barricade. It's just a hostage rescue problem. We've trained on this. But if you're a savvy leader and you recognize the anomaly in it, if you recognize the anomaly, then you know this might be a novel problem that's going to require some creative thinking, some outside the box thinking, some better predicting of consequences, and some better vetting of options. I mean, anybody from Northern California remembers uh, Stockton, a bank robbery that was interrupted by a couple of officers. The suspects take um, a couple of people hostage in a vehicle, and it turns into a rolling gunfight throughout that town. Police vehicles disabled by gunfire, hostages shot and killed. It was just an absolute mess. A very novel situation. It's we don't, There's no checklist for a rolling gunfight with hostages. Um, if the way that we get better prepared is to create those slides through discussion, through imagination. Hey, let's think of the wildest thing that could possibly happen. An M60 tank rolling down the freeway is pretty wild, right? Or a rolling gunfight with hostages, police vehicles getting shot up and just this absolute nightmare scene. How many times do you sit around and line up and talk about this at advanced officer training? How often do we discuss this? And in Cato, how often do we revisit those those scenarios? And you know, you get a rep 
in the scenario just by talking about it and talking through it. You've created a slide just by having the discussion, which is what we're doing here today. And I think to your point, Travis, and talking about the active shooter uh, ecosystem that we're kind of seeing and the after actions that you're doing, there's a lot of common themes, but where I think, I wanna say where things kind of deviate is where you have some anomalies, some things that we don't see in every active shooter scenario, right? I no, think I can. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you want to speak to that, but being yeah. able to identify the anomalies that make this different than a straight, normal, I don't want to say every day is an awful thing to say for active shooter, but when we debrief active shooter and we come out of, with these lessons learned, there's there's stuff that kind of fits within the checklist of active shooter. And then there's stuff where the checklist doesn't cover this. Like, I, I don't right. have a checklist for this anomaly. How do we work through those? No, and I, I mean, I'll, I'll turn to active shooters real quick. I want to get to a couple other points you made because they're really good. But every single one of these things I'm looking at that I've been to, and there are dozens now, there's always something that gets shared with us that's not in the after action report. There's always something that they tell us, hey, our training failed us here. I've never seen this before. But uh, another point that you made is we have confirmation bias. Yes. Right? Yes. An in, 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 uh, incident turns out awesome. And we're like, hey, cool. Everything's great. No problem. But we're again, like Odie says, we're confusing good luck with good tactics. Yes. And again, we cannot let surprise. We talked about this before the podcast creep into our operations. You have to not let that happen. And one of the things that um you talked about was how do we increase our mental slide decks? Because now in the Stockton after action report, that report talks about the fact that every agency should have pre-plans and should talk about how do we deal with a rolling gun battle with a several suspects who have hostages. I guarantee you, Stockton probably has, but every other agency, my agency hasn't talked about how we deal with that. I don't have pre-plans for that. I haven't talked about it with anybody. Well, let me know what just happens. Let me interrupt you for just a second, because you made a great point about Stockton, and I think it's important to make it right now. I'm sure it was really big with Stockton the year two or three after it happened. How many times have they revisited that event, or have we as tacticians revisited that event? I mean, it's it's in vogue for about 18 months after it happens. People get invited to debriefs. It gets talked about at lineup. And then you talk about turnover and supervisors and officers. Those lessons... Have, have evaporated, right? They've, they've become, the lessons are still there, but people have forgotten them because there's so many things competing for our attention that we forget, hey, we have this incident with tremendous lessons learned. We've seen it in protests and riots. We've seen it with HRT problems, right? Like history repeats itself. And the one thing we learn from history, we don't learn from history because we just, we have short memories for this stuff, which is why it needs to stay front of mind because the right. consequences are so high. Now, I don't mean to interrupt, but I, I thought it was important to, to mention that Stockton probably does have the lessons and the agencies that responded do have those lessons. When's the last time we revisited those lessons on such a novel event? Because it's going to happen again. Oh yeah. No, I mean, guaranteed something similar to that will happen. And if they would have read the after action report and come up with those plans, they would be much better prepared for it. Obviously there's always little changes here or there, but one of the, one of the tools that, that I want to pass on is one of the things that I used to look for in critical incidents was called the principle of unmet expectations, meaning what have I not seen here before, what it looks different, what's out of place. And I can tell you, I do that during my size up of the problem. That really helps me identify any novelty pieces going on. Hey, why is this person moving slower than normal? You know, why are the firemen not moving slow or moving fast? That happened to me in an incident where we had a car catch on fire next to a senior citizen center. Um, you know, why? Always ask why. What's going on here? And then as soon as you identify something that's out of place, start to drill down into that a little bit. Don't get tunnel vision. Don't go down into the basement. But you need might need to pay a little bit more attention to that to diagnose that problem to figure out what's going on. Well, and I think sometimes we don't know what we don't know. And I know we keep bringing up that phrase, but when we talk about confirmation bias, right, you're looking for facts or circumstances that confirm what you think instead of the opposite, right? Um, instead of looking for disconfirming evidence, like, hey, my theory is A, 
But there's some evidence to show that A is incorrect. You're not, instead of looking for that evidence saying, hey, am I sure that this is the right course of action? Am I sure I'm diagnosing this problem correctly? Am I sure in the OODA loop I'm orienting myself correctly? You know, we're looking for stuff saying, no, this fits, this fits, this fits. Well, is there anything that doesn't fit? And we, because we have this illusion of experience, our experience may not necessarily pertain to this particular scenario. You may have been in 50 car chases. And I keep coming back to the tanks. It's a very easy, novel example. It's before my time, but it's a great example. Hey, how many times have you been in a car chase with a tank? Well, I've been in 100 car chases. Okay, your experience doesn't necessarily translate to a tank rolling down the freeway, right? So right. Let's, let's think differently about that. And that's, that's where we get into things like overconfidence. And then escalation well, of commitment, right? This doubling down on a course of action that may not be the right course of action. We kind of saw that in Uvalde, right? The whole, we're going to keep waiting. We're going to keep waiting. You know, we're, we're diagnosing the problem this way. We're going to keep waiting. So we're, we're doubling down. The experience that we have in these scenarios may not apply to the scenario that's in front of you. And this, you can go back to ancient wisdom, you know, more than 2000 years ago. No, no man ever steps in the same river twice. It's not the same man. And it's not the same river. It's very easy to say, hey, we did this before and it works out great. Did we? Is this the same thing as it was before or is this something different? And when we're talking specifically about novelty, recognizing that you're up against something novel, even moderately novel, is 50% of the way there. When you're like, no, 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 we need to deviate a little bit from the checklist. Sully, 2,800 feet, dual engine loss. The engines power the aircraft. Right, it's a fly-by-wire aircraft, meaning that there's no electricity. It's very hard to fly that bird. So, what does Sully do? His first remedial action is like step fifty on the checklist, which is starting the auxiliary power unit, because he knows step fifty is going to enable me to fly the bird. If I don't wait till step fifty, we're not going to be successful. He knows to deviate from the checklist because this is a novel problem: dual engine loss, twenty-eight hundred feet. This has never been tested, trained. It's never happened before. He knew because he was so well versed in his profession how to deviate, to work within his options, and then facilitate a successful conclusion. No, and you bring up a good point. Sully was an expert, right? Right. And, what, and I go back to what I said before is, we're faced with all of these new officers and sergeants in the patrol ranks, and it goes back to the Dunning-Kruger effect, it's a, which is this psychological tendency for amateurs to be overconfident and experts to be underconfident. And I, yes, yes, the newbies, the newbies, they believe we, they've got it all figured out. Right. While the weathered veterans were like, we understand that nothing is ever really for sure. And it always we always kind of take that step back. And I think that that's a phenomenon that we see right now where uh, this is just another barricade. This is just another TC. This is no big deal. Those of us who have been doing this a while realize, man, there is a lot of stuff that I don't know. And I'm always going to be a little bit cautious about something that's going on. And I think that's an important phenomenon to understand when we, when we talk about these things. One of the other things is Occam's razor, which refers to simplicity, right? One of the nine principles of, of war is simplicity. What I see a lot of is uh, supervisors out in the field, even when they're confronted with a novel event, They'll overcomplicate things. And what I tell them is, look, when complicated problem, like a novel problem, meets a complicated plan, we self-induce friction. We have to do everything that we can to not self-induce that friction. So understanding if you're a lieutenant or a sergeant who's mentoring another sergeant or your officers, it's imperative that they understand how to brief things quickly out in the field when you have to come up with a hasty plan and develop a couple of contingencies to confront a problem that's becoming, that's coming into you. The other thing is principles. We have to study those principles because it goes back to what we, what we know from field command uh, is principles provide us with a glimpse of where to look when no answer is apparent. They provide us with a little piece that we can start to eke out, man, I've never seen this before. This just doesn't look right. I don't know what to do. Hey, I'm going to go back to my principles and I'm going to start to diagnose that problem. And it's not going to provide you with the answer, but it is going to provide you with an incremental way of starting to solve that problem. Because if you can get one little piece solved, it's just, if this little piece, like if I can just get us to stop self-deploying, we're going, I mean, look at the pursuit with the deputy yesterday. 
40 cops in that pursuit. Where's the leadership in that? So you have to be able to have those principles available to you so that you can start to eke out some type of answer to the problem. And that, that goes to another point that those, those concepts, those principles, they're universal. They, they apply to everything. It's how we apply them is contextual. And that's where we get stuck as we try to force our solution into the wrong problem because we don't take the time to understand those principles and novel events are where they make rookies out of us, right? So just reiterating, hey, the application is contextual. The principles are the same, right? And the time and terrain and like reading those, I, I like I like your thought of, hey, stop. Is this exactly the same? Look for what's different. How big is that difference? Is this something well, I need to, is this something I need to pay attention to? Well, yeah, and we should always pay attention to it because we may pick up on one anomaly and kind of tuck it in the back of our head. And then 20 minutes later, five minutes later, 10 minutes, whatever, we pick up another anomaly. And maybe because we're looking for disconfirming evidence to make sure that we're not, you know, drinking our own Kool-Aid, that that's helpful, right? I mean, that makes that helps us make sounder decisions. We can't legitimize bad or unsound tactics because they worked out this time, right? So we want to make sure we make sound decisions. And one of the things that I think I've seen in another class was the difference between good day rules and not good day rules. So, you know, the rules a lot of the times are built for, I don't want to say a good day, but a predictable day, as opposed to this is not, this is not normal. Like this is entirely different. Look what's going on in Buffalo right now. Right. With all these people you know, being found frozen, you know, under vehicles in their homes like that's is there a checklist for that, for doing these kinds of rescues in the middle of a blizzard or an ice storm and things like this? Like there's good day rules and there's not good day rules. And, you know, when talking with uh, Travis on what happened yesterday in Riverside, you know, you look at, at the response and I mean, that's not a good day. That's that's a really bad day. So is there is there a different posture is there a different response because of that and i i i think it's important to acknowledge you know the good day factor and the bad day factor let's look at sully another one right the the dual engine loss checklist is made for you know 30,000 feet 20,000 feet so you have altitude to work the problem and try and relight reignite the engines and you know it's not made for 2800 feet those are bad day rules right you're deviating from that checklist because that checklist is not built for this scenario um, you know, you have 208 seconds to work this problem. You don't have enough time to work this problem. Um, I mean, they did, but not by the numbers. And so that I think is really what you're looking at when you're looking at working these problems by the numbers. Is this a scenario? Is this good day rules, bad day rules? And, and yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Being flexible you know, and adaptive. And what what training scars are we creating if we don't build in bad day rules and then um, train? A culture of flexibility. So you know, train um, that, train that heads up thinking, be flexible, adjust. And we see this a lot, and I'm I'm guilty of this uh, uh myself, that okay, it's a surrounding call out, it's a uh you know, limited penetration, it's a dynamic, it's a this or a that. And in reality, call-outs have elements of all of those things, and it's never an either or it starts off with one, but if you really look at the tactics you use on a, an entry or a search warrant, arrest warrant, even a barricade, you use all of those at some point. And yet we still say it's, it's this, or it's that we I've even titled ops plans that, Hey, our focus, you know, this is our main effort is going to be this. So and that's just a really super basic example, not even novel, just creating the lack of flexibility. Well, and so let's talk about the flexibility. We were talking about this before we jumped on the podcast here. And, um, you know, there are big agencies that have a conflicting orders policy. And I, I think it's important to for for leadership to understand that that might be something worth building into your department's policies and procedures. This one says members who are given an otherwise proper order, which is in conflict with a previous order, a policy, a procedure, or directive, 
So I respectfully informed the superior issuing the order of the conflict, basically saying, hey, Sarge, I, I think it's a violation of policy. If the superior issuing the conflicting order does not alter or attract it, that order shall stand. And the superior shall be responsible for the conflicting order and members shall not be held responsible for disobedience of the order, policy, procedure, or directive previously issued. So let's say you've got a novel scenario and your checklist doesn't work and you're a sergeant, you're a lieutenant, maybe you're in a corporal and you're the watch commander for the night, you're a small agency. There may be a scenario, a novel scenario, where you may have to deviate from policy or procedure because you're familiar with the tactical science, because you're trying to achieve a successful outcome, saving somebody's life or, or something along those lines. Um, there are agencies who have these kinds of policies built in because they recognize the rule book doesn't govern everything, but you will be held accountable for your decisions. So as long as you're making those decisions in good faith and sound judgment, you're going to be okay. Um, now, if you go off the rails and do something ridiculous, that's a whole different story. But there is there is some room to maneuver in time and space. But I think in, in 2022, people are afraid of making the wrong decision because the consequences are dire. Or at least that's the appearance. And I don't think that's necessarily, uh, I, I think that's probably a fairly accurate assessment given what we've seen. And that goes to self-educating. You have to educate yourself. If you read nothing else, read these two after action reports. Read the Pulse nightclub and read the 2014 Stockton report because those will provide you with some countermeasures, especially the Pulse nightclub incident. Mm -hmm. There yeah. are so many lessons learned there. And look, I know a couple guys down there and to this day, they are still talking about that incident, it made such an impact on that agency that they have changed the way they do business, the way they make decisions. And I think it's important that we press upon supervisors that if you are waiting for people to spoon feed you this stuff, because here in California, what do we get? Eight hours of post-approved, actually Marcus has done a good job of improving this, but eight hours of post-approved critical incident. That is not going to provide you with the necessary training and education to start to solve a novel problem when it lands on your doorstep. You have to take it upon yourself to read and study these things and to seek out experts who can help you be a better supervisor when this problem lands on your front doorstep. I think, and I don't, I, we kind of touched on asymmetry versus symmetry, but I think uh, Adam did, but Asymmetry is essentially pitting our strengths against the suspect's weakness. And it provides you with a tool that you can use to start to eke out a little bit of, hey, what is my countermeasure to this problem? For example, in Pulse, they decided not to go down that hallway and do an assault on opposing doorways. And they didn't know at the time, but one opened in and one opened out because they believed that that would be a suicide mission. And so that caused them to develop the plan over a little bit of time to breach the three side wall. So they pitted their strengths, the suspect's inability to defeat an explosive breach against their took their strengths against that suspect's weakness. The other thing is there's something that, that, that Marcus, I think you guys teach it as well is the uh, initial focus of effort methodology. You guys are teaching that correct in critical incident course, right? So, that that initial focus of effort methodology is essentially preventing the loss of life. What response resources do I contain the problem, isolate the problem, evacuate, gather your intel, protect your evidence, provide for human needs, develop your contingency plans. But this is a this can be used for any event. It's a methodology. It is not a checklist. You can think of it like a set of piano keys. I don't care what order you play them in, as long as you play them all. However. The very first one that you use is preventing the loss of life and great bodily injury. Whenever I'm responding to a novel event, I'm always asking myself that question because what that does for me is it tells me what I am going, the decision I'm going to have to make for what we are going to have to do when we arrive on scene. How much, and, and we can go into time and terrain and all that absolutely plays into this. But what am I going to have to do? That is your primary objective. 
And then all of those other things that we have to do fall subordinate to that. Well, and that gives us focus to cut through the noise, right? That's the signal through the noise. If your North Star is preservation of life, life of the public, life of your officers, and the life of the suspect whenever possible, and that is what our goal is, everything should feed into, into that goal, right? And everything else is noise at that point until we've kind of got ourselves in order. And I think with active shooter, two goals, right? Stop the killing, stop the dying. If we have stopped the killing and we have stopped the dying, most everything else is secondary, right? Traffic control and crime scene and reunification and all that other stuff is a far second to stopping the killing, stopping the dying, right? And so if we're focused on those two things. That's your initial focus of effort. And there should be a voice of command, right? Giving that focus of effort, whoever that might be, kind of focusing our work on whatever the problem is, th then we're winning, right? If we're stopping people dying, we're stopping the killing, we're winning. Everything else, it's noise. Once we've done those two, we, re we refocus on whatever the new focus of effort's going to be once we've stabilized that scene. The same is true with the tank, right? If right now, if nobody dies, we're winning. Eventually, this thing will come to an end. Every event eventually comes to a conclusion. So if we can bring this thing to a conclusion with nobody getting hurt, that's really winning, right? That's the goal here. So if you're running that event, all the actions and decisions and the thought process you have should generally focus on that. You can only focus on one thing well at a time, focus on preservation of life. And another countermeasure to think about is called the rule of three. And I've talked about this on a, on a prior podcast we did a year or two ago. There's, and it's something that, that Sid taught me a long time ago that I've used over the years. What are three things I need to know right now? What are three things I need to do right now? And who are three people that can act on my behalf? So that goes to having trusted officers. You should start delegating tasks out as soon as you get to that problem. But that, you should always have tools in your toolbox, right? Initial focus of effort. How do I diagnose chaos? Three things, you know, the principle of unmet expectations, asymmetric strategies. All of these tools that we're talking about will help you when you're confronted with novelty and it will help you work through that problem. And they, I know they work because I've used them before. So just remember that rule of three, three things I need to do right now, need to know, and three people that can act on my behalf. So we talked a lot about principles versus procedures and contextualizing it. And uh, the rule of three is great for not getting overwhelmed by events and answering some questions, uh, asymmetry. But let's talk a little bit about, you brought this up earlier, priority of life. And when we look at the priority of life, and uh, we've had, this isn't, I don't think, as controversial um, as it might have been 10 years ago. Uh, unfortunately, we've had a lot of people put in situations uh, to address this and give us examples. But let's talk a little bit about confronting novelty when the priority of life if you follow it rigidly, fails us. So law enforcement, much like the business world, tries to distill complex topics in down and in, in, down into the simple. The problem is when they get novel, they fail us. And so one of those things that we try and distill down into simplicity is the priority of life. And the priority of life, as we know, ranks, and the NTOA calls it the safety priorities, and we won't get into all that. But the hostages are at the top. If you have hostages involved, then it's citizens, then it's officers, then it's your suspect. So a couple things, AB 392 changed this, uh, but that's not really novel. Kind of changed that priority if you look at it, putting the suspect at the top of the list. However, one of the first times I diagnosed this was at Pulse. And so those officers thought that going down, because I would talk to them, going down that hallway to confront the suspect was a suicide mission, meaning they would die if they went down there. Now, and I asked this question when I instruct is, can you order your officers to commit to a course of action that's going to lead to them dying, absolutely going to die, or 90 or above, whatever it is. And I get a lot of, well, yeah, you can send those officers to the death. Well, that's actually not true. The decision on whether or not you are going to surrender your life is up to the individual. Now, for us to commit our officers to a course of action 
there has to be such as a hostage rescue. There has to be some probability of success. That doesn't mean it's risk-free. In this instance, those officers thinking that they were going to die puts them actually where on the on the on the list. It puts them at the top. If you if you if you think about that deeply, the other thing too is uh, when we're the other example that I give is you're confronted with an active shooter situation. You have multiple people down inside of a bar that are injured, that are in need of rescue. And you also have an officer that is down that is in need of rescue. Who do you rescue first? What does the priority of life tell us? Well, priority of life tells us we're going to leave that officer and we are going to go rescue those people that are inside. We're going to stop the dying phase. What are we actually going to do? Let's be real, everybody. We are going to rescue that officer first because it is an emotional decision. One of your brothers or sisters is laying dying. The likelihood of you making that emotional decision is absolutely there. So what I would just get across to the listeners, Marcus, is that there are problems with some of these things that we use, especially the priority of life, when we confront novel situations and it fails us. And I would really, really encourage you to have these talks whether it's in patrol, especially with your SWAT teams, I encourage guys, hey, you do not want to be having this argument up at the front of a crisis site while this problem is going on. You want to be having these back at the station way before the crisis hits your front door. Lead up. Have these conversations with the people that you work for prior to this event happening. The worst thing you can do is be trying to explain these concepts to a new lieutenant, a new sergeant, a new captain, a new deputy chief, a new undersheriff that's going to be the person you answer to during these events. You have to lead up and, and have these conversations. And, and just before we continue, I feel like I wouldn't be doing listeners justice if we don't remember this great quote from Randy Watt. We will risk our subordinates' lives only when necessary and only in a calculated manner. Randy's talking about we, we do send people into harm's way, but we don't do it without using some science behind our decision making. We don't just accept the battle space the way the, the adversary gives it to us, right? And that goes back to ordering someone to their death. We're not going to do that, right? We're not going to risk their lives in an uncalculated manner. We're going to have a controlled, disciplined response, but you can't get that if you don't understand what you're looking at. Well, and I think uh, if you're listening to this, then you are taking the initiative and you have the opportunity to take these lessons and these discussions and spread them, right? To ask those questions of your, of your teammates and to have those conversations because, you know, it's not Travis and Adam and Marcus that are going to show up at your scene. It's people who've probably never listened or never come to a Cato conference or don't read an after action unless it's required for a promotional exam, you know, with, with staffing being the way it is and with turnover being the way it is, it's incumbent on all of us to, to embrace the learning curve. And like you said, to be a student of our craft and that doesn't stop once you got your doctorate, right? It doesn't stop once you're a Sergeant or a Lieutenant or a captain, it, it it never stops because you never know when you're going to be in a position to to make those decisions or to set right a course that's going down the wrong path. I think for me, it's it goes back to what I've been harping on for seven, eight years now is everything we do starts with the decision. Everyone on a SWAT mission has to make a decision of some type. Everyone in a critical incident has to make a decision. Some are more important than others, but we do a poor job in law enforcement of working on our decision-making. We all probably have, you know, our, our firearms program. Yeah, we work on marksmanship. What about the decision to even shoot in the first place? When was the last time your agency did any decision-making on that? I would guarantee, or not guarantee, I would, the, the likelihood is great. And the after-action reports, I, I, when I travel, guys are like, where did you get this? Where, where it, it's just Google it, buddy. Like it's right there. All of this information is at your fingertips. It take you a couple days reading for 10 minutes each for three or four days to get through an after action report. You don't have to go through the whole thing. Get those good little nuggets that are out of there, put them in your mental slide deck 
and keep them because you never know what problem is going to land at your doorstep. And the last thing you want is to have an officer dying or something happen that you've never seen before and you just come up empty and you go into condition black and nothing is happening. That is never the way I want it to be. I always I never wanted to have a negative after action report written about me because I was not prepared for something that happened. And most of us are only going to get one call like this in our whole life. Occasionally you work for a big agency, maybe you're a busy SWAT team or fugitive team. You're going to have to deal with multiple ones, but most of us aren't getting more than one or two hostage rescues a career. Right. And so uh, you have to be prepared uh, to, to address that. Right. It doesn't matter where you work. The community that you serve is uh, paying you uh, a fair, if not really good wage, especially if you compare yourself across the country to address these problems. So if you take a leadership position of any kind, you you don't get the option of whether you are going to be a student of this craft or not. Like you, you've asked, you've competed to uh, put your badge shield star on, and you've told the community that you are going to be a leader in the community and you're willing to uh, accept this risk. And so now it's just, how can you mitigate it? How can you mitigate this as much as possible before you put yourself or other people in harm's way? So thank you both for uh, joining me. I appreciate the discussion. We hope you got something out of it. And uh, if you like what we're doing, you don't like what we're doing, send me a note on uh, Instagram or email. And uh, please share, share an episode if you find value in it. See you next time. Thank you for listening to the Cato Podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catonews.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catonews.org. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice.